Hello, friends. This is Darren Hayes of PigskinDispatch.com. Before we take you to your favorite Sports History Network show, just want to tell you a little bit about some merch that you can pick up that represents your favorite SHN podcast. So far, there's t-shirts, coffee mugs, and even books from some of the authors that do podcasts right here on SHN. Who could buy something better than that than have the history right from the, the gentleman that you hear talking about it? But we also are adding things each and every day. And where's that store, may you ask? Well, it's at SportsHistoryNetwork.com. Up at the top, there is the SHN. HN merch button. Click on that. It'll take you right to the store and you can be representing your favorite podcast and show the world that, hey, on the swag that I'm using, it's the headquarters of Sports Yesteryear, Sports History Network, and my favorite podcaster, the Sports History Network store. Shop there today. Jim Thorpe straddles the line between American history and American mythology, so much so that it's hard to find the man within. Having lived in a time before television means that while some actual evidence of Jim Thorpe's literally almost unbelievable sports feats do exist, the stories of his accomplishments have become amplified, exaggerated through the years. It is a fact that Thorpe was an Olympic gold medal winning decathlete and pentathlete. It is a fact that he dominated college football and went on to enjoy a Hall of Fame career in the earliest days of the NFL not to mention an eight-year Major League Baseball career. By the time he'd left the ballparks and football fields behind, by the time he was no longer managing or coaching, the legend of Jim Thorpe had grown to mammoth size already and was well on its way to becoming nearly a full-on American myth. The truth was becoming nearly impossible to divide from the fiction. Jim Thorpe is clearly one of the greatest of all time in any era of sports. And in this episode of Truly the Goats, yes, we'll consider Jim Thorpe the athlete, but we'll also try and keep in context Jim Thorpe the man. And if you have some passing knowledge of Thorpe, you may be surprised. The greatest of all time. We say it, we hear it, we read it constantly and continuously. But what does that mean? My name is Oz Davis, and this is Truly the Goats. Sports history as told through its superstars. Have you ever heard the expression, if you've heard one, you've heard them all? With Jim Thorpe, it's the exact opposite. You need all the stories just to hear the one, the story of his life. James Francis Thorpe was born in 1887 in what was then called Indian Territory, and today is part of Oklahoma. In his native language of Sock Fox, he was named Bright Path. The year of his birth? was the year that the Dawes Act, a bill calling for Native Americans to, quote, assume a capitalist and proprietary relationship with property, unquote, and that essentially turned over most tribal lands to white settlers, was enacted into law. Though they wouldn't be counted as citizens with full rights for 47 more years. As essentially a ward of the state, Thorpe's grade school years were spent at the Sac and Fox Agency School in Indian Territory. But it was in 1904, when he came to Carlisle Indian Industrial School, that the legend of Jim Thorpe began growing, almost instantly. Imagine the young Jim Thorpe, 18 years old, somewhat used to living away from home, but never having traveled this far. His train, noisily plowing through the winter of early 1904, traveling out of Oklahoma Indian Territory, through the plains, through industrialized Missouri, across the Mississippi, and ever eastward. The cities the train passes through seem to 
grow larger and more crowded as the weather around gets even colder. At least, where he was going was no mystery to young Jim Thorpe. Carlisle Indian Industrial School was the first boarding school for Native Americans, first founded in the 1870s, and by the turn of the century, a model for untold similar institutions in the U.S. He may have heard dark rumors about the place. Modern estimates figured that in the 39 years of the school's history, more students died than graduated. But Jim certainly knew of the underlying kill the Indian, save the man dogma of the school. Jim certainly knew to expect his hair to be cut and that any show of his native culture would be punished. However, the young man had one anchor to tether him to his distant and alien land. He was damn good at sports. And after two days or so of traveling, Jim unfolded himself from the rickety train seats into a bleak Pennsylvania winter welcoming him to Carlisle in true Dickensian fashion. One often-repeated story claims that he beat the school's standing high jump record on his very first day of the school, on his first try, wearing street clothes. Now, whether or not that particular story is 100% true, we do know that he played on Carlisle's track and field, lacrosse, baseball, and football teams. Despite rapidly earning a reputation in the college ranks as a track and field star, sometimes even serving as the sole member of the Carlisle team for away meets, Football was the game at which Thorpe truly excelled. And together with his coach, Glenn Pop Warner, it was in American football that Thorpe may have made his biggest impact. To learn more about Jim Thorpe for Truly the Goats, I spoke with Justin Leonard, curator of the Jim Thorpe Museum and Oklahoma Sports Hall of Fame. Justin is one of the world's foremost experts on Thorpe's lives and times, and based on this one interaction, I'd guess that any expert on Jim Thorpe soon becomes an expert on Pop Warner as well. Uh, the Carlisle Indians were a force to be reckoned with when he was their coach. Um, he was the athletic director at Carlisle, and he was a baseball coach, track and field coach as well. And he really kind of not only revolutionized the game of football, um, but he really revolutionized kind of the college athletic department. Um, he, By the time he left Carlisle, he had created a money-making machine there. He was very astute when it came to marketing and promotions, and um, he had, of course, a great product to market and promote. His teams were very good, very competitive. Um, they were always competing, especially from about 1910 through the 19-teens with the top college teams in the country. And at this point, there was no real pro football, so college was it as far as for a popular consumption. In 1911, the Carlisle Indians pulled off an upset nearly 110 years later, still considered one of college football's biggest ever, by topping the national champion Harvard by a score of 18-15, including 12 points from field goals and 6 points from a touchdown by Jim Thorpe. The courier of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, led its coverage of that game with, For the first time since 1908, the Carlisle Indians met Harvard in a football game, and when the whistle blew, the Carlisle team had scalped their pale-face opponents. The same reporter notes in the next paragraph, Carlisle had a third down with eight yards to gain. Thorpe was once again called upon for a field goal. Standing on his own 47-yard line, he neatly booted the ball over in one of the prettiest kicks ever seen in the stadium. The Houston Post, in an end-of-the-year retrospective, noted that, An Oklahoman Indian, Thorpe, playing half 
for Carlisle is recognized as the greatest player of the year and a man whose kicking is likely to revolutionize the game. The next year, Thorpe scored some 27 touchdowns and 224 points. He was named to his second consecutive All-American team. But it was the offseason that his legend grew exponentially. And I'm not talking about his 1912 Collegiate Ballroom Dancing Championship title either. 1912 was the year of the Stockholm Olympic Games. And you may have heard about Thorpe's exploits in those games in winning the pentathlon and the decathlon. But get this, Jim Thorpe's performance in those Olympics was even more crazily dominant than it sounds. Some of the records he set stood until the 1970s. Some of his point totals in both these events would have garnered him a podium stand up into the 1970s. And in those 1912 Olympics, what was the modern pentathlon? Well, the modern Olympic, when it came out in 1896, was was just a disaster. Um, the first uh, Olympics before 1912 were marred by all kinds of problems. The one they had in St. Louis, nobody in Europe even knew it was going on. The one they had in England was marred by a nasty political environment and uh, allegations of corruption. And so the 1912 Olympics was really kind of this, we either need to get it right now or this thing's going to die and lose interest and not have the funding to continue. And so Stockholm really took that seriously, the city that hosted it, and they had their stuff together, to say the least. They were extremely well organized. And so this Olympic Games really did kind of save the modern Olympics to an extent. And, um, and one of the reasons was they got back to what was kind of at the core of the Olympic idea. On the day after the Olympic opening ceremony, the main draw of the games was the pentathlon, and Jim Thorpe was about to take over. First event was the long jump, long a specialty of Thorpe's, at least as the stories would have it since that first day at Carlisle. Thorpe wowed the crowd with a jump of 7.07 meters, a very sizable .22 better than second place finisher Ferdinand Bia of Norway. The javelin throw, one of Thorpe's, let's say, weaker areas, was next, and he finished a mere third. But no matter, Thorpe would rarely finish poor again at these Olympics. He nipped two USA teammates by one-tenth of a second for victory in the 200 meters. Now, just three events in, Thorpe had essentially already guaranteed himself a podium stand. And unfortunately for the rest of the field, Thorpe appeared to be getting stronger, faster, and just straight up better as the pentathlon went on, taking the discus event by nearly two meters and blowing away the field in the 1500 meters, winning by more than five seconds. Jim Thorpe was the pentathlon gold medalist. The first full day of competition at the 1912 Olympic Games was over, and Thorpe was already the buzz of the international sports world. The decathlon began six days later. Thorpe started the decathlon slowly. His 11.2 in 100 meters was 0.2 seconds off the leader. He also placed third in the long jump. The third event of this decathlon was the shot put, and Thorpe was about to take over again. His win in the shot put with a 12.89 meter throw was followed by a win in the high jump big enough for a 98-point win under the complex decathlon scoring system. Most of Thorpe's competition knew the race was for second place. We now know with the benefit of hindsight that Thorpe was already up some 350 points 
on second place Charles Lomberg of Sweden, a more than 11% differential. By the time of the 400 meters, it must have been a shock to see Team USA's Jim Thorpe finish fourth. And if his subsequent third place finish gave anyone else hope of competition, well, that proved to be delusional. Thorpe's crushing victory in the 110-meter hurdle was another dagger to the field. At 580 points ahead, Thorpe could have cruised a victory on day three, but he certainly would not, quite possibly could not. Cheers preceded his participation in every event at this point, whether he competed with Team Sweden's athletes or not. Finishing third in the pole vault and fourth in the javelin throw, Thorpe had one more chance to win the crowd, the 1,500 meters. And in that race, he nipped Gusta Hamler by nearly two seconds. Despite beating the hometown athletes, Thorpe was rewarded with a standing ovation. And as he was presented with the gold medal for his victory in the decathlon, as the story goes, King Gustav V of Sweden, in presenting Thorpe with his last gold medal, told him that he was, quote, the greatest athlete in the world. Thorpe's response is today his most commonly known quote. There's just one problem. Did he really say thanks, King? Probably not. You know, there's a lot of characterizations. I mean, it's done throughout history, especially with minority groups. There's always these kind of um, stereotypical characterizations of who they are. And people used it all the time in the media. Sports writers used it, as did Warner when he was promoting and marketing his wild, savage Indian teams, as he would call them, you know. And there was always this play on this simple Indian thing with Thorpe when you read popular writings of the time, so newspaper accounts, whatever it was. There was always some, like if Army was playing Carlisle, it was always, oh, the cavalry and the renegades. It was always some... There was always some spin on it, and I think a lot of the myths that originated with Thorpe come out of kind of that stereotypical view that most of society had of an American Indian in 1912. And Thorpe was an educated man. He understood the gravity of his accomplishments. He understood where he was at. He understood who he was speaking with. You know, they made him out to almost be like a child. You know, like he didn't appreciate the fact that he was actually speaking to royalty or who what he had just accomplished. The American team had two weeks on a boat to get over there. And they not only were training physically to stay in shape, they also required all their athletes during this two-week trip to take an etiquette school crash course, more or less, to understand how you handle yourself at a dinner, how you talk to royalty. He probably didn't say, thanks, king. He probably said what would have been the proper response at that time. A side note, Thanks King story, shows how media of the time was hard at work in creating what we'd probably call today the narrative of Jim Thorpe. Here's one particularly egregious example, which appears to be completely the product of the writer's imagination. From the Evening Star of Washington, D.C., the headline reads, Shy Indian athlete refuses to see King, and is subtitled, Olympic winner says, I guess I won't go when bid into Royal Palace. London, July 22. It was learned on the voyage of the American athletes to Dover that on the day when the Finland left Stockholm, the King of Sweden sent an equerry to the ship to command the presence of Thorpe, half-breed Indian and winner of the all-around athletic championship at the Royal Palace. Thorpe refused to go. It is probably the first time in history that a royal command of such a nature was ever refused. It is reported 
that the king wished to give Thorpe a token of appreciation of his wonderful work at winning the pentathlon and decathlon in the Olympic Games. But when the gold-braided royal equerry boarded the ship and gave Thorpe the summons, the Indian looked sheepish, tried to dig his foot into the deck, and finally replied bashfully, I guess I won't go. Commissioner James E. Sullivan almost fell off a chair when he heard of the incident. He was shocked at such a breach of etiquette. All he could say was, let us hope his majesty has some sense of humor. Bashful Indian? Alongside these loose interpretations of reality were the praises, admiration, and superlatives heaped upon Thorpe. President William Howard Taft himself wrote a letter that read in part, I have much pleasure in congratulating you on account of your noteworthy victory at the Olympic Games at Stockholm. Your performance was one of which you may well be proud. You have set a high standard of physical development, which is only attained by right living and right thinking, and your victory will serve as an incentive to all to improve those qualities which characterize the best type of American citizens. Had the president forgotten that Thorpe, like all Native Americans, wouldn't actually become a U.S. citizen for another 12 years? In August, the New York Times ran a story entitled, Sullivan Praises Thorpe. When Team USA returned stateside, Sullivan sang Thorpe's praises for weeks and months. He states simply that Thorpe was the greatest athlete of the age. And at the age of 25, Jim Thorpe's place in sports history was forever assured. Though that story would grow longer and more complex almost immediately. In January 1913, the Worcester Telegram broke a story which spread around the country and world in days. Namely, that in the summers of 1909 and 1910, Thorpe had played a number of professional baseball games in North Carolina, and that Pop Warner had known all about it. The implications were huge. In those days, this pay-for-play invalidated any status Thorpe might have had as an amateur in 1912. With a speed that would be surprising today, members of the Amateur Athletic Union, that's the AAU in early 20th century parallel to the modern NCAA and the U.S. liaison to the International Olympic Committee, met to decide Jim Thorpe's fate. Pop Warner had special interest in Thorpe's situation, i.e. he needed to clear his own name of wrongdoing to continue leading the legendary Carlisle Indian sports teams, he thus drafted a letter for his former star athlete which might mitigate the consequences for Thorpe's violation of the letter of the law and exonerate Warner. But Thorpe's fate was likely already sealed. You have to remember, too, even more in 1912, we're coming out of this Victorian era into what would become the modern era. And athletics, like everything, was kind of a microcosm of that. I mean, the London Athletic Club in 1910 qualified an amateur athlete as a white guy that didn't have to work for a living. And so we're coming out of that and into a modern era. The U.S. Olympic team had African-American. He had several American Indians. It had two native Hawaiian Islanders, and it had tradesmen. This idea that, you know, America never really fit into that Victorian mold just because of who we were, but the social Darwinism that we were getting out of at that time, um, that really played a part in this narrative. And the AAU, as you mentioned, and the IOC, as well as Warner himself, in order to save the cash cow that he had at Carlisle and the cash cow that uh, the AAU had, this is prior to the NCAA, and the cash cow that the IOC had, 
it was based on these very rigid Victorian ideas of an amateur and that we still kind of cling to today in some respect that if you get paid to play a sport, then you do not qualify. And Thorpe got, I guess you could say technically he got paid. Though a lot of the checks didn't clear uh, when he played in the Carolina leagues in the summers of 1909 and 1910 and played semi-pro baseball. A lot of college athletes did that. In fact, almost all of them were told by their college coaches if they did go play to use an alias so they wouldn't get caught. A lot of college coaches sent their athletes to the state leagues to play baseball in the summer to keep them in shape, keep them out of trouble, keep them focused on something during the off season. And so Warner knew Thorpe was playing baseball in 1909 and 1910. He made very little money. Um, twice the league folded while he was playing in it. He played in a game where one time the game was called because the ump had something else to go do, so they left. My point is, to call it a professional league would have been a stretch, and the money he made was minimal. The letter written by Pop Warner that Thorpe was expected to sign, the key paragraph reads, In the fall of 1911, I applied for readmission to this school and came back to continue my studies and take part in the school sports. And of course, I wanted to get on the Olympic team and take that trip to Stockholm. I had Mr. Warner send in my application for registering in the AAU after I had answered the questions and signed it, and I received my card allowing me to compete on the winter meets and other track sports. I never realized until now what a big mistake I made by keeping it a secret about my ball playing, and I am sorry I did so. I hope I would be partly excused because of the fact that I was simply an Indian schoolboy and did not know all about such things. In fact, I did not know that I was doing wrong because I was doing what I knew several other college men had done, except that they did not use their own names. This far in the Jim Thorpe story, you may be wondering what I was at this point. Now, a lot of people want to place much of this blame on the fact that he was a Native American. How much do you put on that, and how much do you put on all these other factors playing a part i mean money and power matter and if somebody of consequence and power was the one being charged with this it might have been handled differently or swept under the rug a different way or whatever i mean i guess you could say he was stripped of them because he was an american indian more so than if he had been white but i don't think he was ignorant of what he was doing if that makes any sense because he was an american indian I think he knew the rules of the game. He knew he played semi-pro ball. Maybe he didn't put as much credence into it like any person would that, oh, well, I don't even know if that counts. I didn't play in MLB. You know, I, was, I wasn't playing for the Yankees. And so um, I think there was a little bit of confusion on his part there. But, you know, the letter that Warner wrote that Jim signed where he was begging for forgiveness and in it, it basically states, please forgive me for I am a simple Indian who does not know the ways of the world or such ways as Warner wrote it himself and had Jim sign it. That was just Jim kind of doing what his mentor told him to do to try and salvage this, to see if it could be salvaged because the egg was on the face of Warner and the AAU because Warner, when he submits his athletes for the Olympic trials, he states on an application that he knows they have never been paid to play a sport. And what that article had discovered, in addition to the fact that Thorpe was on several teams, was that Warner probably knew about this and might have even condoned it. Thorpe definitely didn't have the benefit of a strong legal defense because he didn't have the means and he didn't have the benefit of being a white guy. 
technically he didn't even have the benefit of being an American citizen at this time, even though he represented the United States in, in, in the Olympics, as were the native Hawaiian Islanders, as were the three other American Indians on this team. And so, you know, the whole thing is kind of out there when you stop and take a step back and look at it. And it should also be noted that public support was overwhelmingly on his side when his medals were stripped. I mean, political cartoons and the newspaper cartoons showed Thorpe as the sacrificial lamb under Warner's knife, under the AAU's knife. And the public support was massive for him retaining his records. And even the guy who they wanted to give the first place medals to finished second didn't want anything to do with it. And so... It's interesting that you had this massive public groundswell, this massive overall support worldwide for those who knew about it in Jim's corner, and it just didn't seem to phase anything, you know, because of the fact that he took a few hundred dollars probably over the course of two years to play semi-pro baseball in North Carolina. He was stripped of his, uh, of his medals. When spring rolled around in 1913, Jim Thorpe began his career in Major League Baseball. It was really the only option. Back in 19-teens, 19-aughts, there was, there was boxing and there was baseball if you wanted to earn a living playing a sport outside of gambling. And that was it. And so um, Thorpe wasn't a boxer. He didn't have anything to do with boxing. So, he, so baseball was the logical step. It was the only option. Think about that for a moment. The Worcester story had resulted in the stripping of his medals along with his amateur athletic status. Thorpe already knew he wouldn't be going to the Olympics again to defend his two titles, and he would not return to Carlisle. What was the greatest athlete in the world? The two-time medal winner, maybe the world's first ever acknowledged GOAT to do with his life. Well, why not play at the highest level in the world, in his third best sport? As one consequence of the Worcester Telegram story, Thorpe could not be what was termed then a free agent. Since the story revealed that Thorpe had played pro ball previously, his contract would have to be bought out from the Fayetteville, North Carolina club, which still technically owned his services. In other words, the highest bidder would get the world's most recognized athlete on their baseball team. Unfortunately, this landed Thorpe on what might have been one of the worst teams for his circumstances, the defending National League champion New York Giants and their Hall of Fame manager who wanted nothing to do with a celebrity. Because he was so famous, a lot of baseball teams were wanting him to play on their team and even offering very high salaries under the idea that, hey, we get Thorpe on the field, we're really going to sell, you know, sell out the concessions and the, the high-end seats. Um, and the New York Giants, who were one of the top teams in the league at the time, John J. McGraw, Hall of Fame manager, one of the more popular managers of Major League Baseball history, was their manager. And they brought Thorpe in against McGraw's wishes, but they brought him in, quite frankly, as a marketing ploy, as a way to stick him on the programs, get his name out there, and we'll sell tickets. And it worked perfectly. I mean, even though he had been stripped of his awards, it, it wasn't a negative for him. He always had strong public support and was always extremely popular. And so it worked really well for the Giants. Ticket sales were up. More people came to the games. Thorpe uh, did see some playing time. Um, he was used intermittently throughout his Major League Baseball career. He struggled in New York because he struggled with McGraw. Uh, Thorpe throughout his life had a real problem with authority. 
and McGraw was a hard-handed, heavy-handed, uh, authoritative manager. Um, like a lot of white guys in 19 teens, he was an outright racist. Um, he really would, and would use that against Thorpe. He called him a dumb Indian multiple times on the field. One time, Thorpe shoved him down. He had he got benched. Um, and so he really struggled relating with the guys in New York and playing for McGraw. But when he was loaned out, he was loaned out to Boston, the Braves. He was loaned out to Cincinnati. He had some of his best years as far as average and you know, playing time in the field. We'll probably never know for sure how good Thorpe might have been at baseball had his contract been bought by a different franchise. But he gave a hint in his final season. Playing with the Boston Braves in 1919, he hit 327 in just 60 games. He had played a small part on the 1913 National League champion and 1917 World Series champion New York Giants teams. But Thorpe's biggest contribution to Major League Baseball in the 1910s, well, aside from boosting New York Giants ticket sales a bit, that is, was something of a dead-end marketing ploy that attempted to leverage his international fame when greats like Christy Mathewson, Trish Speaker, and Sam Crawford elicited little more than a who? Outside the borders of the USA. He was, following the 1912 Olympics, bar none, the most famous individual athlete in the world. I mean, there was nothing like the communications we have today. There wasn't even the telephone used. And yet he was internationally recognized somewhat immediately simply because of what he achieved. The New York Giants, and I believe it was the Chicago White Sox, and they went and traveled all over the globe for the most part, in particular in Asia and in the East, and they really were pushing baseball. This is what baseball is. This is how it works. And, of course, the reason why the Giants were chosen was because of Jim Thorpe. Here you have, as I mentioned, the most popular athlete in the world from what he did at the Olympics. So that's going to help sell tickets. Indeed, the Giants-White Sox game in London drew 20,000 spectators. Here's to thinking King George and the rest weren't there to see Turkey Mike Donlin. So, Jim Thorpe may not have been in the right place at the right time for baseball, but he was absolutely the man of the hour for a new professional football league to be known as the NFL. Jim returned to the game of his Carlisle glory days in 1915, nearly three years since he'd last played high-level organized football. He broke in with a team called the Canton Bulldogs. As with McGraw, the Bulldogs' coach did not want to be saddled with Jim Thorpe. But this time, things would be different. When he, when he went to play professional football, um, there was maybe 1,200, 1,500 people that might show up to a Canton Bulldogs game. The first game he played in, I believe, was something like 8,000 people showed up. And he didn't even play. The coach was mad that he was stuck on the roster after the season, and he benched him. So the guy that owned the team fired the coach, made Jim the coach, and he played the next game. And that 8,000 figure is quite impressive, considering the population of Canton in 1915 was less than 70,000, that the Bulldogs were a semi-pro team, and that the college game was tops in the mind of most American football fans. Before the formation of the first National Football League in 1920, pro football in the U.S. was comprised of loose regional affiliations of teams filled with locals plus the occasional ringer like Thorpe. Thorpe's Bulldogs were unofficially recognized by organizers and sports writers as the nation's top team in 1916, 17, and 1919. 
So as the newfangled ragtag National Football League came together, Jim Thorpe, and to some extent his team, were a much-desired commodity. In 1920, the American Professional Football Association was formed, with the Canton Bulldogs taken on as one of 14 teams for the league's inaugural season. In order to leverage his fame, Thorpe was named the NFL Precursor's first-ever permanent president. And Thorpe thus became that rare combination commissioner-slash-tailback. Few statistics were kept or even reported in those early days of American pro football, but what we do know about Thorpe's NFL career is, naturally, astounding. Um, The historians of the game have really credited him with pushing the popularity, but his athleticism cannot be overlooked and just say, well, he was popular, he got lumped with the right coach at the right time, so that's his influence. He's one of the greatest football players to ever play football, period. And, you know, you got to quantify it. You got to say early era because the game is just different. But he is one of the best to ever play. Um, He did everything. He never left the field, which wasn't uncommon at that time. But he was responsible, like when he played for the Oorang Indians one year, which was a pro team, he was responsible for all their points because he was their place kicker. In, In an entire season, one individual was responsible for all of the team's points. And they weren't playing against air. They were playing against other great athletes. And so, um, you know, Thorpe was head and shoulders athletically ahead of his time. There's no doubt about it. And as far as football was concerned, he would have had rushing stats. He would have had scoring stats. He would have had stats on defense as far as tackles and everything else he did that would have rivaled, been at the top of the league every year he played. Um, Now we know towards the end of his career, like a lot of guys at the end of their career in football, those numbers were a lot smaller. His playing time was reduced, but he was one of the prominent players and one of the best players when you go through the stat lines in a newspaper, newspaper accounts throughout his whole time in the league. And that's why he's, you know, one of the inaugural members of the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Yeah. More or less, more or less the Babe Ruth of professional football. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's, a, that's a very good way to put it. I mean, he, he, he's it. He really is. I mean, there's some other ones, of course, you know, some of the big names, but Thorpe was the, the, the original, for sure. Though Thorpe would quit NFL football, accepting a single game played for the Chicago Cardinals at the age of 41, he wasn't quite done expanding his athletic repertoire. In early 1927, Thorpe tried his hand at yet another sport, a newfangled game exploding in popularity in America called basketball. Though he rarely played, Jim Thorpe and his world-famous Indians played some 57 games in early 1927 in Pennsylvania and elsewhere. Publicity in newspapers would typically promise, for example, a game between the Michigan State Champions versus Indians featuring Jim Thorpe, world's greatest athletes, and five real Indians. Incidentally, this particular advert from the Detroit Free Press also noted that the team had, quote, won 36 out of 42 games in five states. They ended up with a record of 49-8, and eight, including a 16-game winning streak. Thorpe's team went out on the road again at the end of the year, and though he almost never played again, his reputation was still selling tickets. Wrote the Marion Star in December, Some of the greatest Indian athletes of the country will perform for local cage fans tonight when the world-famous Indians basketball team plays Isley Dairies on the star floor. Jim Thorpe, greatest athlete of all time, will be along and will act in the capacity of coach, but will not play. 
The years are leaving their mark on the famous red man, and now he leaves the basketball game to younger, more nimble bodies. In sharp contrast to today, most retired athletes from much of the 20th century were hardly certain to enjoy post-career fame. And a minority ex-player had extremely little chance of finding a job in coaching on any level. And until multi-million salaries became the norm in American sports by the 1990s, even the greatest sportsmen were forced to scrounge for jobs after retiring in their mid or, if lucky, late 30s. For the quote-unquote ethnic players of those days, such prospects were even dimmer. Throw in the Great Depression, followed by a world war, and things weren't great for anybody, much less a Native American ex-athlete greatest of all time or not. After his departure from the NFL, Thorpe managed to find some coaching work through New Deal programs. Afterward, he found token jobs in California's fledgling entertainment industry. And, soon after seeing roles of Native Americans in Western films and TV shows inevitably go to a made-up white actor, he helped found a casting company for Native American actors. But stable income proved elusive, and Thorpe financially continued to see dwindling returns. When 1950 came, Thorpe enjoyed a brief return at the spotlight of sorts, with 50-year retrospectives inevitably, from the Associated Press on down, naming him the Athlete of the Half Century. Such reminiscences surely inspired production of the Hollywood biopic Jim Thorpe All-American, starring Burt Lancaster, putting the story, if very few of the true facts, in front of a generation who were born after Thorpe's sports career. Sadly, within a year of the film's release, Thorpe died due to complications from alcoholism. Without money enough to pay for funeral expenses, Thorpe's then-wife traded rights to his internment to the town of Mount Chunk, Pennsylvania, with the proviso that the town be renamed Jim Thorpe. In general, the story is a bit of a come-down for those inspired by Thorpe's sports exploits, but perhaps the myth does disservice to the man here. How do you handle that last part of his life? There was a pretty nasty stock market crash in 1929 and a horrible economic depression that took place throughout the 1930s, which didn't help matters, um, and a world war. So there were a lot of things that contributed to him falling on hard times financially, falling out of popularity within the public sphere. But there was also kind of a rebirth of that that took place. Um, about the time the Burt Lancaster movie was made, which is total fiction, by the way, by the time that movie was coming out, Thorpe was starting to kind of reemerge. His exploits at Stockholm and the Olympics were being featured again. Um, his exploits on the football field were being featured again. He was a member of a couple of uh, WPA projects. And so he coached for a, a federal team called the uh, Harjo's Indians. It was a New Deal thing. And so that kind of brought him back into the public sphere because they wanted him out there selling everything from New Deal stuff to war bonds to anything. So there was this complete downfall, and then there was this kind of slow rebirth. And he took advantage of that to an extent. He got bit parts in movies. But what he did with that was he was able to fight for equal pay for American Indian extras in movies. And what you learn when you study history, there are two things that are for sure and for certain with history. There's no such thing as a perfect hero ever, period. And second of all, there's no such thing as the good old days. Those days don't exist, right? So you look at Thorpe and you're like, well, he was a human being like the rest of us. He had flaws like any human being would. 
and a struggle with alcohol was one of them. And he was a loner. Thorpe was the kind of guy that would just take off and might not come home for a couple of weeks. But he definitely struggled with a little bit of his personal identity as far as where he fit. Here you had an extremely popular individual who, if he was in the segregated part of the United States, had to go in the back door of hotels where he stayed and eat in the kitchen with the help. But yet he's the highest paid guy in Major League Baseball and the most popular athlete in the world. I think he's, I think he struggled with that, and his biographers um, allude to that in, in a couple of the better books. It, it's probably something a lot of American Indians and minorities at that time dealt with, especially American Indians. What is their home? What is their, you know, we're, we're still working out of the total segregated, total uh, removal of American Indians from anywhere close to ancestral land onto these isolated reservations, creating this ward of the state society that we still struggle with today. Thorpe was dealing with all this, and it all played a part into as far as his divorces, into some financial problems. Um, unfortunately, you know, years of abuse and other things begin to catch up with him. Um, and he was predisposed to some uh, heart disease, and that's what got him in the end. He fought for mineral rights till the day he died for American Indians, um, that they were owed on per their Dawes Agreement, on the land that they were given ancestrally. So, I mean, it's, you know, he, he used his popularity for a lot of good, and, and he was a staunch supporter of American Indians during his time. But the myth of Jim Thorpe grew still further after his passing, again to the detriment of the more human side. In a 1961 speech, former President Dwight D. Eisenhower said of him, quote, Here and there, there are some people who are supremely endowed. My memory goes back to Jim Thorpe. He never practiced in his life, and he could do anything better than any other football player I ever saw. Perhaps this was wishful thinking on Eisenhower's part. In that 1912 meeting between the Carlisle Indians and West Point Cadets football team, Eisenhower was pulled from the game when he suffered a broken leg after Thorpe had avoided his attempted tackle, and Army lost 27-6. However, the exaggeration of Thorpe's athletic ability just simply isn't true, and flies in the face of some of the most important of lessons that we can take away from his story. I always tell the kids, hey, don't get lost in the fact that he set a world record in the 1,500 meters by three seconds on the last day of the decathlon. That is great. But think about what he had to do as an American Indian to get to that point at this time period. Or think about the obstacles he had overcome or how hard he worked. Adults will come in and they'll say, oh, I heard he just you know, showed up and you know, won first place. I'm like, no, he didn't do that. First of all, that's not real. There's no real human being on this planet, not Bo Jackson, not Michael Jordan, not Jim Thorpe, who just showed up and did what they did. These guys worked their asses off to get to where they got to. They practiced hard, they trained hard, they tried hard, and they put a lot of effort and time into what they did. And it's no different back then, because even for all the shortcomings, he was a success overall in his life. There's no doubt about it. He was a good man. He was a caring man. He was an extremely generous man. That's well documented. And he was a, probably... Arguably one of the greatest, if not the greatest, athlete this country's ever produced. The turn of the 20th century was quite a time to take stock of sports history. In 1999, greatest athlete of the century, listicles and programs were rife. Call it recency bias, disrespect of history, or technological innovation, Thorpe was generally, say, 
underrated in these polls. The Associated Press Top 100 Athletes of the Century had Thorpe ranked at number three. Not bad, but ranked behind Babe Ruth and Michael Jordan. Dominant athletes, to be sure, but dominant single-sport athletes. The ESPN Sports Century listed Thorpe just seventh on its list, behind not only Jordan and Ruth, but other single-sport stars such as Jim Brown and Wayne Gretzky. One ABC popular poll of 1999 listed Thorpe in the top spot. But by 2016, the same network somehow failed to include him anywhere among a top 10 greatest U.S. Summer Olympic gold medalist of all time list. Finally, in 2019, to celebrate 100 seasons of the National Football League, the NFL created a TV series featuring the top 100 professional football players of all time. Jim Thorpe was snubbed altogether. But worrying about such public acknowledgement of Thorpe's achievements on the field is probably trivial. As Justin says, we can thank Jim Thorpe for the very existence of the NFL and quite possibly the Olympics themselves. But perhaps to see the truly most poignant effect he's had on culture, we should make our focus a little tighter. In South Dakota, on the very same Oglala Sioux Reservation land where 300 Sioux were massacred by U.S. Cavalry in 1890, when Bright Path was just three years old, Pine Ridge High School, with its student body of almost entirely Native American kids, fields teams in football, wrestling, girls volleyball, and boys and girls basketball, cross-country running, and soccer. In 1987, the boys basketball team made South Dakota sports history with a 26-0 season and a Class A state championship. The mascot of the Pine Ridge High School teams? The Thorpes. The legend the myth and the man, especially the man, that we call Jim Thorpe, will never be forgotten. Next week on Truly the Goats, get ready to really start talking all time with a visit to ancient Rome and the story of Flama the Gladiator. This has been Truly the Goats, sports history as told through superstars and inclusive medium production. For more Inclusive Medium podcasts, visit us at inclusivemedium.com. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude. And I hope that you enjoyed this recent episode presented by the Sports History Network and were able to learn some good old-fashioned sports history knowledge nuggets. I started the Sports History Network Back in 2020, with the mission to help podcasters find a community of like-minded sports history nerds, as well as helping aspiring podcasters to start their own shows. We have a little bit over 30 shows on the network right now covering all sorts of sports history, but as far as I'm concerned, we're just at the toothpick in the ocean moment, you know, that can't even figure it out because there's so much more coming. We wanted to create the ultimate headquarters for sports yesteryear starting with Podcast Network and our website, but we're going to continue to move into other mediums as well. And here's the cool part, because we want you to be part of our team. So if you're interested in starting your own podcast, or maybe being a guest on one of our shows, or who knows, maybe even writing an article for us over on the website. Seriously, all you got to do is reach out to us on the contact page over at sportshistorynetwork.com. You can be as technologically savvy as a Neanderthal tapping on a stone trying to figure out this whole hieroglyphics thing back in the day. Again, it doesn't matter, because even if you 
don't understand the whole podcast space, we have a production team that can pretty much help you out with doing everything. All you got to do, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com, head to the contact page, fill it out. That message goes right to me, and I'll reach out to you as soon as I can. But for now, dude, I'm through if you're through.